Welcome to Spirits Podcast, a boozy dive into mythology, legends, and folklore. Every week we pour a drink and learn about a new story from around the world. I'm Amanda. And I'm Julia. And this is episode 140, Bread and Family with Julia Tertian. A different Julia, but still a great one. Absolutely. I almost uh, mismanaged a file when I tried to upload two files titled Spirits 140 Julia. Yeah, it happens sometimes. I'm sorry. I know. This was pre-Multitudio uh, days, so now I have Brandon making sure I make no mistakes. Thank you, Brenda. We love you. You know who else we love? Our new patrons. Our new patrons. Allie, Chris, Rachel, Kylie, Megan, and Kat. Thank you so much for joining. We're so happy to have you. We are. We are. Drinks are on us later. Not right now, because it's like 10 o'clock when we're recording this. We're at work. It's true. And as always, thank you. We love you to our supporting producer level patrons. Philip, Eeyore, Skyla, Mercedes, Samantha, Marissa, Sammy, Josie, Neil, Jessica, and Phil Fresh. As well as our legend level patrons, Amanda, the the stars in our skies, the, the bread to our butter, Ayla, Cody, Mr. Folk, James, Jess, Sarah, Sandra, Audra, and Jack Marie. Thank you, everyone, so much. We would love to share our drink with you, which is delicious. Julia, please tell us what we're drinking. So this week, I crafted an anchor and crossbones, which uh, usually I pick something a little bit more thematic to the episode. But because Julia was talking so much about the, like, bread of her childhood and growing up with bread surrounding her. I wanted to pick something that kind of reminded me of my childhood. So these always remind me of like breakfast sweet buns, you know, like the kind of like maple syrup covered, super warm and toasty. So I usually make them with an amber ale, uh, specifically anchor steam beer and then a maple liqueur. But you can basically use any amber ale for it. It's delicious and reminds me of home. Or even like really good maple syrup, frankly, is like just as sweet. Yeah. Honestly, you could probably do regular maple syrup and then like a whiskey on top if you really want to get fancy. Ooh, we're getting toward fall, Julia. And fall is when I put maple syrup in everything. Listen, oh, people, I know it. if you've never put maple syrup in coffee, get on it. Yes. This is when I start using hot honey for everything because I want to be a little warm. A little cayenne and everything just makes everything toasty and I appreciate it. Delicious. Speaking of great tastes and recommendations, do you have any like books, podcasts, music, movies to recommend to us this week? Yes, I do. I went to the beach this weekend and I took a book that has been sitting on my bookshelf forever and I just haven't had the time to pick it up. But it was Space Opera by Catherine M. Valenti. And oh my God. Of Deathless. Yes. Oh my God, Amanda. It's about, I'm only like a couple chapters in at this point, but I'm already gushing. It's about Earth finally gets recognized by other sentient aliens. But to prove our sentience, we get invited to basically Eurovision. But if we don't win, we die. In space? In space. And the oh uh, the main character is just like a pansexual, beautiful. It's basically like our modern day Freddie Mercury. And I love it so much. Oh, my God. That sounds absolutely perfect. It's very, very good. Highly recommend. Uh, well, Julia, over the weekend, I was reading an artifact that I uncovered from my childhood yes. during my recent move. Um, it's, a, it's a zine that I wrote about Neopets when I was 10. And we actually scanned and uploaded it for all of the multi-crew members to read. It is amazing. There is like a riddle me this page. There is a word search. There is like a helpful guide to free items in Neopia. As mm-hmm. you can tell, nothing has changed. Um, mm-hmm. And most excitingly to me on the back cover was like, hey, so uh, guys, I want to make a, an issue too, but I have to, you know, get some content and stuff. So like, write me letters. Like if you read this and you like it, please tell me. And it was just like, it was the 
the most like podcaster call to action via a 10 year old that I've ever seen. Please tell them what you told me about how you distributed said magazine. Well, I faxed it to the people who oh wanted it, Julia. Oh my god, I did. it's incredible. So if you were looking for quality content like this, I would highly recommend signing up for the multi-crew. You can go to multicrew.club and sign up. It is worth it solely to read Amanda's 10-year-old zines about Neopets with like the full Neopet rankings. It's true. It's true. It's, it's very impressive. Well, Jules, you know that we love a personal mythology, so I am not going to keep our listeners any longer before you enjoy episode 140, Bread and Family with Julia Tertian. We are joined today by Julia Tertian, who is a podcaster, chef, and author, someone whose work I've admired for a long time. And when I saw your beautiful new cookbook, Julia, I thought this might be a really good time to invite you on the show. So thank you very much for making the time. Oh, thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to it. Oh, good. It's an absolute pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much. Yeah, our first other Julia, I think. I know. Really? Wow. Yeah. We've been doing this for three years, but I've been the singular Julia. (laughs) <laughs> I still have the last Amanda. If there's another one here, we're going to have to fight. Only one walks away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can Battle call me JT death. if you want, if that helps. <laughs> That's all right. We'll, we won't confuse our <laughs> listeners too much. It'll okay. be fine. Oh, too Beautiful. Funny. So uh, JT, tell us what we are going to be learning about today. <laughs> that was great. You did that very seamlessly. Um, Thank you. We are going to be learning today about That was a weird sentence. Um, I am going to talk about bread baking and about my grandparents and their bakery. Um, And to me, that is the sort of uh, kind of folklore of my family, mainly because I never met my maternal grandparents. So everything I know about them is through storytelling. I love familial folklore. It's it's such (laughs) a beautiful concept. And we love a personal mythology. So I can't mm. wait to hear all about it. Please jump right in. Okay, awesome. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm just, I'm so excited to get to talk about them. Uh, because just like I said, that is how I know them. Um, it's, you know, my knowledge of of my maternal side of my family is through storytelling. And I've received those stories from my mother um, and then from her two sisters, my Aunt Debbie and my Aunt Renee, who are both sadly no longer with us. But so much of my relationship with them um, was built on asking them to tell me stories about how they grew up and where they grew up. And my mom and her sisters grew up in a bread bakery in Brooklyn. And that kind of um, legacy of bread baking in my family is something I feel just very, very closely tied to. It makes me feel just, yeah, super connected to to who I come from and where I come from. And it starts uh, before my mom and her sisters, and it starts kind of in the sort of quote unquote old country, um, because my my grandparents, uh, my mom's parents were both born in Eastern Europe. Um, and they're both they're both from basically what is kind of referred to as Belarus, but you know, borders have changed. Um, <laughs> yeah. but sort of like kind of deep in Eastern Europe, and they led uh, left the area kind of after um, 
a bunch of terrible pogroms. Um, so they fled religious persecution. It was before World War II. They got to the United States sort of in a not very linear way. Um, they went first through France, which is kind of my sidebar, is where my mom got her name Rochelle from because they heard, I think they saw on some postcard, <laughs> the story goes, they saw <laughs> about the, the town or the city called La Rochelle. And then my Aunt Renee also had a sort of a French name. So their names came from that kind of moment. <laughs> and um, then my grandfather went to Pennsylvania um, where he had, it was like an uncle or something. There was some family there, but the paperwork wasn't in place for my grandmother to go with him on that journey. And my grandmother made a detour through Cuba and she spent a year in Cuba by herself. And wow. I, I think about that year very often. Um, and I wonder about it so much. You know, this is before email, <laughs> before <laughs> the internet, before it was very easy to sort of like check in on, you know, on your friends or family who are far away. And I just, I wonder what that year was like for her so much. And, um, and, and I'm so curious about how she spent it. But anyway, I don't really have the answers to those questions. I but was about she to then, ask if there were yeah, any family stories about her time in Cuba. There's not much. And I, you know, I asked my aunts and I've asked my mom and, you know, it was before um, any of them were born. Um, mm -hmm. So I th to me, it's, I mean, I, you know, I've, I've applied this sort of like, probably super romanticized <laughs> kind of <laughs> lens to it. Um, but I imagine it as this kind of like amazing year in her life of, of just total like independence. But I mean, who knows? I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, so she, you know, got back together with her husband in Pennsylvania. And then my aunts were born there. And then they left Pennsylvania and moved to New York. Um, and my mom was born in the Bronx. And then the family made their way to Brooklyn. But I mentioned baking, bread baking, the bakery um, was, you know, that lineage goes really deep. So my grandmother was actually a baker's daughter. And my grandfather was a flour miller's son. Oh, meant to be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The perfect combo. Yeah. In my family, we say it was kismet. <laughs> um, which is basically yes like meant to be so yeah they were they were totally totally meant to be and they I think you know the life they built and, and lived was one that they were I would say were very much continuing from a you know a time you know well before them um, so yeah so they moved to New York they had my mom um, they moved to Brooklyn and then they opened a bakery called Ratchik's which was their last name mm -hmm. So yeah, my mom's maiden name, I guess. And yeah, Ratchik Bakery. I believe it was just called Ratchik Bakery, not Ratchik's, but I think everyone referred to it as Ratchik's, um, mm -hmm. which is, you know, a very small detail. But I always think it's interesting how that happens. Like it sort of becomes like the possessive of the family, which is mm -hmm. sort of fascinating. Um, like and yeah, and so, oh, I meant to say you asked about any stories from Cuba. Mm -hmm. They're aren't any that I know. I'm sure there are many, but none that I know. But there is one photograph that exists Ooh. of my grandmother. Um, and she looks unbelievable in this picture. <laughs> and she has oh like gosh. this huge necklace on and this kind of like um, almost, I don't, I mean, I, I know nothing about clothing and fashion. So I'm the wrong person <laughs> to ask. But she has this like sort of shawl thing. Um, she just looks like pretty amazing. And um like just super cool. It almost looks like, you know, if I didn't know that was my grandmother and knew more about her, I'd probably think she was like a singer or an artist or something. I mentioned that because that's the one thing I sort of know from that time. But then, you know, 
then when I see pictures later from the bakery and, you know, from when my mom was young, she looks totally different. She looks much more, um, there's not jewelry. <laughs> there's not, um, <laughs> there's not that kind of, uh, you know, sort of fabulousness. I think her life became probably a lot more just super practical, <laughs> which is yeah. interesting. So yeah, so that's, that's the one thing I know about that Cuba time. So anyway, so Ratchik's Bakery, Avenue J, Midwood, Brooklyn, um, it was a, a totally Jewish bakery, um, but it wasn't a kosher bakery. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's important to mention because, you know, that's what it was. But also that meant that I think it invited a lot of people into the bakery. You know, it wasn't um, specifically for, for Jews who kept kosher. It was, you know, a real community bakery. It seems like what they specialized in was really kind of like everyday stuff, like bread and cookies. Um, you know, they made plenty of cakes. There's great pictures of the cakes. Mm. It wasn't a super fancy bakery. It's not where you're going for like pastries. It's where you're going maybe a couple times a week to pick up your loaf or maybe for a little mm. treat after school or something like that um, or after work and you know, I, I like to think that they made the kinds of things that families bought to be part of their routines. Um, you know, I think the bakery was very much part of its neighborhood's fabric. And I've heard from other people when I've gotten to talk about this before, when I have um, have been in a space with anyone kind of of my mom's generation who grew up in Brooklyn, they're like, oh, yeah, we got our rye bread at Ratchik's or, you Aww. know, my family got our, you know, whatever it was. And that feels so meaningful to me that their, their food, their baked goods, the stuff they made... Um, you know, it was like a regular part of of people's lives. And that to me feels um, really amazing. And kind of what the role has been of, of bread <laughs> in, in so many families. And I, I was thinking about, you know, what else could I share about their bakery? Yeah, what I wanted to sort of mention, um, in addition to just what they baked and everything, was like a real sense of, of giving that I feel like uh, my family had. And and they really use the bakery to give back in in ways that I feel like are I'm only beginning to connect the dots that I I feel very connected to. Mm. Um, and I think it happened in in really simple and small ways, which I kind of feel like is is the way lots of giving can and and should be. And it should happen in lots of ways. It should happen in big ways, <laughs> um, for sure. It should happen, you know, in big systematic ways. But I think also these small everyday ways that I've really learned from my grandparents are things we can all kind of do. So I'm sitting here talking to you right now. I'm sitting at my desk at home. I live um, about two, three hours north of the bakery's location, depending on traffic. Um, I'm in a very rural area. I'm very separate from where the bakery was, but I'm sitting here looking at the window that is above my computer and I'm staring at this little yellow plastic piggy bank. I could probably hold it in the palm of my hand and it's this funny little object and it says Ratchik's Bakery. It has the address and the phone number on it. Um, and it says the 25th anniversary and there's change in it. I don't know who put the change <laughs> there. I have no idea how you could ever get it out. <laughs> There's no like <laughs> opening besides the tiny little slot. I wonder what year those coins are from. I know. Yeah. I bet I bet I could probably do the math with the bakery. But yeah, it's um this is like one of my most prized possessions I have. And it's something my mom gave to me. I think she was sort of cleaning out her, you know, all the things she held on to one day and thought, you know, thought I might like it. And 
And she was right. And it's something I look at every day. And it's so meaningful to me because it's this little thing that holds change. And it reminds me of my grandparents at the bakery had what were called in Yiddish, um, which was the language spoken in the in the house my mom grew up in. Um, they had what were called pishka boxes, which were like small little collection boxes. I think like a lot of kids like on Halloween and stuff, you get those um, like little orange boxes from... Mm-hmm. Um, What's it called? The UNICEF ones? Yes, UNICEF boxes. Thank you. From what my mom and my aunts told me, the the Pishka boxes were kind of like those, like a little box that you could collect change. And different community organizations would drop them off at the bakery. And they would leave them on the counter of the bakery. So when you bought your loaf of rye bread or you bought your lemon chiffon cake or you bought, you know, your butter cookies or whatever they might be, and, you know, you gave however much money it cost and you got your change, those boxes were there and you could give your change if you wanted. You know, you see this in grocery stores and stuff like that today. Mm -hmm. Um, But the Pishka boxes were, it was such a community-driven thing. And I love thinking about them and looking at the little piggy bank above my desk (laughs) reminds me of them every day because it just made it so easy for customers who had a little something to give to give it. You know, it was just sort of automatic. Mm -hmm. And I love that sense of giving back that happens um, just sort of intrinsically um, and without, um, you know, having to, to calculate too much. And to me, there's something in the like repetitiveness of that and and the impact it can make. And bear with me, this might not be a real thing, but I think there's something like that that reminds me of bread baking, of this like taking a little bit of the dough each time you're baking, not using quite all of it and saving that little bit of the dough to start the next batch. You know, mm-hmm. that's the that's the starter. Um, yeah. And you keep it and you keep it going and you just take a little and give it back to make the next thing. Um, and there's there's something I think just embedded in bread baking that is the sort of like generosity of spirit and um, and lineage. You know, every mm-hmm. loaf of bread that is made with like a natural starter has a little bit of every other loaf of bread <laughs> that came before it. And to me, that is like incredible that like just, you know, I can never quite get over that. And I think I studied poetry in college, so I get really into the, you know, what things are <laughs> called. Um, maybe that's why You're I was in paying the right attention. Place. Yeah. <laughs> maybe that's why I was paying so much attention to the apostrophe earlier that probably <laughs> no one cares about. But to me, that's like a big deal. So, um, you know, I always think it's really interesting, all the all the words and different languages um, people use to describe like a bread starter and a, and f- for anyone who's never made bread or, or doesn't know the process, the starter is basically um, a little bit of, of um, kind of natural yeast, which exists in, in old dough or just in the air too. Um, it's this mixture of flour and water that you use to start your next loaf of bread. And it's what gives your bread rise. Uh, it's what lifts it up. Um, it's it's basically carbon dioxide. There's all different names for starters um, in different languages, but it's often referred to as the mother. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And I always have thought that's sort of unbelievable. There's something like matriarchal about bread baking. And um, you know, th- the mother <laughs> starts every single loaf. So that's my, you know, I could really go down that rabbit hole. But anyway, that kind of (laughs) sense of every loaf having a little bit of every loaf that came before it. And, you know, that just that thought alone um, 
makes me feel so connected, uh, makes me feel connected to the people who came before me. And uh, I think a lot about this with my grandmother in particular, because when she was a young girl in Odessa, um, you know, I mentioned she was a baker's daughter, just as, as my mother is. Um, my grandmother's family's bakery, it also served as a community oven, um, because not everyone had an oven in their homes. And this is very typical all across the world. You hear about this in, um, you know, baking communities from everywhere from Syria to Mexico, um, you know, everywhere. Um, not everyone has an oven. So bakeries serve not only to provide, you know, bread or whatever they're baking, but it's also the one place in town that has an oven. Uh, so when my grandmother was a little girl, neighbors would come in the morning um, usually on Fridays, like before Shabbat and they would leave, um, pots of, of meat so that they could cook in the oven mm-hmm. um, and they could pick them up later in the day uh, when the meat and vegetables, whatever was in their pots was, was cooked. Um, so, so the bakery was this, this place where everyone in the community was, you know, able to cook their food, which was sort of incredible. And the story that I love most about my grandmother is that when she was a really young child, you know, Everyone in town would drop off their their pots of meat to stew, you know, slowly all day. And my grandmother, as a little girl, would sneak in there. And before the pots went into the oven, she would open them and take some meat from the pots from the really wealthy families and move a little bit into the pots from the families that didn't have as much. Mm. And... To me, my grandmother was Robin Hood. <laughs> you know, yeah. she was, she just, she got that. And I don't, again, I'm probably totally like romanticizing this, but I, you know, I don't think she asked anyone if that was okay. I think she just <laughs> did it. That's something I think about a lot, that kind of idea of asking, maybe not for permission, but for forgiveness if necessary. <laughs> and I think, again, when it comes to certain ways of, of giving back and um, to being, uh, you know, impactful for your community, um, for making change in any type of way, sometimes I think you just have to do it and, you know, not ask for permission. So I, I you know, I love thinking about my grandmother as this young girl, just doing that and just making it happen and, you know, making sure everyone was well fed and kind of, you know, maybe breaking the rules a little bit, but like, you know, just not speaking up about it, just doing it, that kind of like head down action oriented type of feeling um, is is just, you know, something I try to keep in mind a lot, like just do it, just, you know, make the difference. And um, yeah, so that sticks out to me. And it reminds me of a different but sort of similar story that was much, much later in my grandmother's life. So, you know, that was when she was a little girl, in Eastern Europe. Um, so much, much later in life, um, as an older woman in Brooklyn, and this was after my grandfather died. And after he died, the bakery, my family's bakery, continued to run, um, mostly because my uncle Marvin, my Aunt Debbie's husband, who was very much treated as like a son by my grandfather. Um, you know, he didn't have a son. And and my uncle Marvin sort of became his his legacy, I guess. And he taught my uncle Marvin how to bake. And my uncle Marvin took over the bakery after my grandfather died. So the bakery was still running. Um, and my grandmother, you know, who's no longer uh, with a husband and was living this kind of similar life, but I think slightly different. My, my mom and my aunts talked a lot about how, um, she, she sort of came out of her shell after my grandfather died, which I think Mm -hmm. is sort of amazing. And, um, and it sounds like she became a lot, uh, I don't know the right word, 
kind of saltier as she got mm-hmm. older. <laughs> um, and so anyway, so one day she's walking down the street to work. Um, she lived, I think, just around the corner from the bakery. And when she would leave for work, it was very, very early in the morning. You know, bakeries open <laughs> quite early in the day. So I, I'm pretty sure it was still dark out. It was probably two or three in the morning, something mm-hmm. like that. And uh, she's she's walking down the street in Brooklyn and I guess she recognized two teenage boys, or she didn't recognize them, sorry. She recognized the television set they were carrying. These two teenage boys were walking down the street carrying a TV set, and she recognized the television set. Uh, She recognized it because it was hers. I don't know if it had some, (laughs) like a sticker or something on it, but she knew it was her TV. So they had, you know, after she left her apartment, they had broken into it and stolen her television. And they were walking it to... I don't know, wherever they were bringing it. This story I just love so much. Um, I think it tells you so much about who my grandmother was. So her reaction to that, this little old lady, you know, um, <laughs> like who's, you know, probably, you know, not that, um, you know, I don't know if she was up for any kind of fight or anything like that. <laughs> she walked right up to these two young men um, who had just stolen from her. And she said to them, go put that TV back and come with me to the bakery. I'm going to feed you. Oh, man. Wow. That story I think about all the time. You know, her reaction to confronting these young men who had taken something from her was to feed them. And to me, that like that was her. (laughs) Um, That was the bakery. You know, it wasn't just a place of business. It was a place for the community. You know, that same woman was the one who, as a little girl, was, you know, moving the meat from one pot to another. Mm -hmm. And you know, in the work I do, I, I try to think a lot about about community and about um, sort of social impact in the work I do. And I just have to think about my grandmother whenever I need any kind of guidance in that area. And, you know, how she used food and the bakery, not just to support her own family, um, you know, her immigrant family in, in Brooklyn, but to be part of the community. And to me, that is food's kind of highest power you know it 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 doesn't just create community it sustains it you know it keeps it keeps the bread going (laughs) um so uh yeah I feel like that is what I kind of wanted to share about about the bakery um and about my grandparents and I uh you know in, in getting to talk about them it's it's definitely how I feel connected to them you know even though I never knew them and I, I look down a lot on my um, my left arm. I have a, a tattoo of a, a loaf of bread, um, <laughs> which my mom actually drew for me. Oh. Um, and it's very funny because a lot of people look at it and think it's a mailbox. <laughs> it's a very simple line drawing. You're like, well, it is a way that I deliver meaning. And <laughs> there you go. I love that. Yeah, that's going to be my new my new line. But yeah, I, you know, that's obviously like a, like literally a part of my body. Um, and it's, it's something I see every day and it, it just, it makes me feel super connected. And, you know, I, I think as a cookbook author, I spend most of my time thinking about food and I love food more than anything. You know, I'm a person who wakes up in the morning who's already thinking about what I'm cooking for dinner while I'm eating breakfast, you know, like <laughs> I, I, I love food. It's my whole life. Uh, But really what I love and what keeps me going and keeps me driven and motivated in my work, um, what keeps me interested is nothing to do at all with food. It's about 
it's about the stories and about the people and about um, that feeling of connection that food can provide for us. So, you know, every loaf of bread I, I see or eat or, you know, get to make, um, yeah, it just makes me feel so tied to these people, these amazing people whose, um, you know, whose hard work and whose shoulders I absolutely get to stand on. So, um, yeah, that's a little bit about my family. I, I love it. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing those stories with us, because I really appreciate kind of hearing, you know, where your sense of community came from and also like where your love of food came from. Yeah, I feel like I have such a, a vivid picture of your grandmother in my head. And I can't imagine, you know, with so many other stories and, and years of lore, um, what your impression of her is like. And she sounds so present in your life. Jules, we are sponsored this week by Third Love, who are on a mission to make sure everybody has a great fitting bra. I have one of those right now. I'm wearing it. Me too. Twins. I love it so much. We know from our experience on Third Love that they have a great fit finder quiz online. And you may be saying like, hey, I know that the best way to get a bra would be to be fit by somebody in a fitting room. So how is an online quiz going to do the same thing? And over 12 million people with boobs have taken the quiz and found it to be really helpful. It's actually very fun. And even though it takes less than a minute to complete, they ask you a lot of questions like what is your best fitting bra? What's good about it? What's bad about it? The cup, the band, the straps, all those little details that like, hey, an individual size like doesn't express the full picture of how our bras fit and what might be wrong with them. And let me tell you, the bras are great. They are really comfortable. They are high quality. Even the strapless one does not make me want to die. I'll be wearing it at Julia's wedding and I'm very happy that I found a bra like that. Today, our listeners can go to thirdlove.com slash spirits to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. Yeah, again, that is thirdlove.com slash spirits to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. Thirdlove.com slash spirits for 15% off today. Now, Amanda, we're leaving in less than a week now for podcast movement. Woo-hoo! Less than a week. So sweaty. And I, I it's going to be very sweaty, which is why I am planning my outfits in advance. It's very smart. You got to be sure you're like economical with your space. You got to have that like cardigan, that jacket to put on in the convention center and then to walk outside and like not want to die. And you know what helped me really plan out these outfits? Is it Stitch Fix? It's Stitch Fix. You got it in one. So Stitch Fix is an online personal styling service that delivers your favorite clothing, shoes, accessories directly to you. I sent a message to my Stitch Fix stylist. I said, hey, listen, I'm going to be in a conference center in Orlando in just a month. Please help. Send help. And they did. They absolutely did. So all you have to do is you have to complete a style profile, which means you tell them what you like and they're like, oh, sweet, we'll send you some of that. And then your personal stylist will send you a hand-picked box of items that are based on your style and your preferences. So there's no subscription required. You can decide which months you get and which months you don't. You can say, hey, I want one in October, but not in September. It's great. Shipping and exchanges and returns are always free. Plus the $20 styling fee is automatically applied towards anything you keep from your box. And I always keep more than one thing. So it's always good. Uh, You can discover new styles and also unique pieces with Stitch Fix. I have this incredible skirt that I'm going to be wearing down to Orlando that is palm fronds and it's like wavy and beautiful and I'm so excited to wear it. I just, I'm delighted. So thank you, Stitch Fix. Julia, you always rock it. I am so excited to see what you wear. And listen, whether you wear like quote women's or quote men's clothing, Stitch Fix has options for you and you can switch back and forth. I will often buy masculine styles and also feminine styles. So it's great to know that both of my bases are covered. 
Yeah, thank you, Stitch Fix, for being versatile and also sending you really cool pattern stuff. I appreciate it. So you can get started today by going to stitchfix.com spirits and getting 25% off when you keep everything in your box. That's stitchfix.com spirits for 25% off when you keep your whole box. Stitchfix.com spirits. And finally, conspirators, we wanted to close out this little refill by giving you a taste of Head, Heart, Gut, which is our new original show from Multitude, our weekly show featuring all six Multitude hosts. We're so proud of it. We are so excited. Schneider is doing a great job editing, and everyone here contributed to making the show the awesome, fun, friendly, and yet very competitive show that it is. It got very competitive in that first episode. I will tell you that right now. Oh, it sure did. And this week kicks off round two, which we did Pokemon starters for the first month. This month is primary colors, which you might think it's just, oh, it's just personal preference. No, there is a right answer. And it is my answer. <laughs> well, no spoilers about that. It, it gets really intense. I, I may or may not have judged that round. And oh boy, it's super exciting. You can join the multi-crew at multicrew.club to get access to this brand new weekly show for Multitude and a ton of other things like live streams, like voting rights to future episode topics and like naming plants, all kinds of fun stuff, as well as a actual physical engraved nameplate on our wall in the Multitudio for those in our Magnificence tier. That's multicrew.club. Also, Amanda designed glitter enamel pins, and you need one of those right away. We're going to be rocking them at a podcast movement. We can't wait. I am so excited. So here is a quick taste of head, heart, gut, and then we'll get back to the show. Friends, Romans, artisans, bug catchers, kids on a school bus. Lend me your ears. This is Head, Heart, Gut, the friendly debate show where there's no right answer, just the best answer. Every month we take an iconic set of three items from pop culture or the world we live in and pit them against each other. First, each of our contestants will present their choice, answering the questions on our definitive survey of greatness. At the end of each episode, the other contestants will score them based on their head, heart, and gut. And we will ultimately decide a winner of these three survey rounds. In week four, we turn up the heat with a special guest judge who lays down a ruling in a formal structured debate. This week, I, Julie Schifini. I, Eric Silver. I, Amanda McLaughlin. I, Mike Schubert. I, Eric Schneider. I, Brandon James Grugel. I will be arguing this week. And I will be arguing on behalf. I will be arguing on behalf. I will be arguing on the behalf of Charmander as the best starter Pokemon from generation one. Let's get it going. Could you, uh, could you kind of walk us through your decision to become a chef? Was that something that you always felt? And how did you sort of reconcile that with your family legacy? Did it, a part of you ever want to go a different direction? You know, it's so funny you asked that. And it was, it was funny because when even, you know, however long ago, in, uh, half an hour ago, whatever it was, when you were like, oh, can I introduce you as, um, you know, podcaster, author, and chef? And I'm like, yeah, sure. And I actually don't really identify as a chef at all. Um, and mm. it's it's the kind of thing that, I, I mean, it makes a lot of sense, I think, to describe me as a chef and I, I will absolutely like take it. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm, I'm a home cook. I'm a mm. lifelong home cook. Um, to me, a chef is someone who works in a restaurant um, or who's responsible for sort of running a, a professional kitchen. And I take a lot of pride in the fact that I don't <laughs> um, mm -hmm. and that I... and. Um, I guess I should have said something earlier, but it's it's interesting to be asked that because I have cooked since before I can remember, since I was a young, young kid. Um, I have always felt what I can only describe as like a magnetic pull to the kitchen. Uh, you know, I didn't have any type of like... Um, I don't know, playroom or something like that when I was a kid. Like, mm -hmm. I just wanted to be in the kitchen. Um, 
it's it's really the only place I've ever wanted to be. Um, and in in my home kitchen, you know, I've never wanted to work in a restaurant. Um, I I think home cooking is like the lifeblood of <laughs> humanity. Um, yeah. And that sounds really dramatic, but it's also really true. And it's also where I just on a much more sort of personal, <laughs> like everyday level, um, the kitchen is where I feel my best. It's where I feel safest. It's where I feel most curious. Um, it's a place that gives me a lot of uh, feeling of, of control. <laughs> you know, I get to decide what to cook and how I'm going to make it and, um, you know, all those things. And I get to feel that sense of control in a world that doesn't, I think, offer us <laughs> that mm. sense very often. Um, so I've, I've felt that way since I was so young. So this is a really long way of answering your question, which is to say, I've honestly never considered anything except for for food um mm. and i have wanted to work on cookbooks just as long as i've loved cooking um and i think that's because i was exposed to cookbooks at a really young age um i'm a self-taught cook and i i taught myself through cookbooks through reading them through looking at them before I could even read I would just look at the pictures um and also um a big part of my education was public television and watching mm -hmm. just hours and hours and hours of cooking shows um and yeah. you know th that's really how I learned and my parents actually worked in publishing when I was growing up um mm -hmm. my dad still does uh book design work uh, my parents worked in magazines so I grew up in a house where printed matter was being made. Um, you know, my parents mm. would, the work they brought home um, from the office was, you know, images and words that they literally would cut and paste <laughs> and put together. Um, so I saw from such a young age that people make things like books and magazines, like they don't just exist. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there's people who make them. So I feel grateful uh, for so many things in my life, including that I was exposed to that knowledge at such a young age. And um, I've really kind of never considered doing anything else. And I feel like this sort of lucky unicorn of a person that I've <laughs> known what I've loved to do since I was really young and I, and I now get to do it. Um, that's something that I, I definitely don't take for granted. I uh, I know, Julia, that you do a lot of work in a, um, I don't know how to characterize it, but Angel Food East, is it a food pantry? Is it a community kitchen? Um, and anyway, I see it on your Instagram and I, to me, that's like, oh, well, this is, this is like a chef as someone who cooks for people. Um, but I totally see how that might be more aligned with like, a natural extension of just the hospitality of the home kitchen for you. Yeah. So Angel Food East is, um, it's a local organization near where uh, Grace, my wife and I live um, that we've been regular volunteers at for, oh, I don't know, like two or three years now. And um, basically what it is, is like a local Meals on Wheels program. Um, we make homemade meals that get delivered to uh, clients who are homebound for a number of reasons. And the organization was started over 25 years ago to serve clients in the community who um, were living with HIV and AIDS. Um, and it's grown to include clients who are, mm -hmm. yeah, essentially just homebound for whether it's um, illness or age, uh, whatever, whatever the reason might be. And uh, we serve about 60 clients, so it's it's a pretty, um, I would say, sort of like manageable size. I, I've When I used to live in New York City, I, I did a lot of volunteering with God's Love We Deliver, which serves like close to $2 million, <laughs> two million um, meals a, a year. Wow. Um, so, you wow. know, I've seen it kind of on that kind of scale. And uh, the work we do at Angel Food East, um, 
you know, I think really does make a difference in, in the lives of, of the clients we serve. It for sure makes a difference in our lives. Um, and I do love it because of that size, because we basically, every Thursday morning, um, we get to the kitchen. It's run out of a, a church kitchen. <laughs> um, and we get there uh, usually a little bit before 8 a.m. Um, and we, together with some other volunteers who are part of our shift, um, who are also just just really fun to be with, um, we all make a, a meal uh, from scratch and we package it into these containers that we then seal and um, those get put into bags with um, some other food and this whole other team of volunteers comes in to deliver everything. So our part of it, making that one meal, that you know, as part of their their bigger bag of, of food. That all happens in like two hours. And so we get to make this meal, package it up, clean it all up like within this two hour window. So having it be 60 clients means we can make the whole thing from start to finish, um, mm-hmm. which is like very, very satisfying to get to do. So yeah, so that's, mm-hmm. that's the work we do. And I now don't can't remember the other part of your question. <laughs> sorry about <laughs> yeah, just like hospitality and 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 serving people. Hospitality. You know? Oh yes. Okay. Sorry, <laughs> got carried away like thinking about the numbers. Um, yeah. I mean, it's like a combo question yeah. and hypothesis. Okay. So <laughs> got it. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> like I mean, all good I, questions. Exactly. No, I think it all. You know. Yeah. It's that kind of work. You know, I mentioned doing stuff at God's Love We Deliver before we moved here. Um, I've 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 helped out a lot at a lot of different kind of food pantries and soup kitchens and those sorts of places, um, and that has always been yeah a part of my life um, for a number of reasons. One is quite frankly you know I, I grew up with a lot of privilege and I know like kind of deep in my bones that with that comes I you know, a certain amount, a lot of amount of responsibility. Like I think if you're in a position to give, I just can't imagine not giving in some way. And I think the the decision um, is not whether or not to give, it's just figuring out what's the best way for you to do it. And for me, it's it's through food um, because that's what I love to do. So it's, you know, when when Grace and I go to Angel Food on Thursday mornings, I look forward to it. I I love our shift. I love the task of figuring out what to make based on like what we have. Um, I love the people we cook with. I love getting to cook that much food that quickly. You know, it always feels like we're on like, uh, you know, a tiny episode of like Amazing Race or something. Like, are we going to pull it off? And then we do. (laughs) One thing that I do wish we had a little bit more in that particular role was um, more... um, interaction sort of directly with the folks who are eating the food that we cook. We are a bit removed since we are just in the kitchen. We, we delivered to one client, um, but that's something I've been thinking about a lot more. Like, is there a way to be more involved in that? Um, but that's sort of like a sidebar. But um, yeah, I think it's it's all about figuring out what's the thing that you would be delighted to keep showing up for, um, because that's mm. what makes the work sustainable. Like you have to enjoy it. And one of the most amazing, amazing, amazing parts about our work with Angel Food East was that for the first kind of um, two years of us being there, it coincided with getting to work with this really remarkable friend, Georgine, um, who sadly passed away uh, about six months ago. And Georgine had been volunteering at, at that 8 a.m. Thursday shift uh, for years before we got there. And when we showed up, um, getting to meet her was was just one of the biggest gifts 
of my life. And I, I know that's true for Grace as well. I mean, we learned so much from Georgine. She was just just one of the funniest, you know, kind of sharpest people I've ever met. Um, and we, you know, we got to be a big part of the last two years of her life with her. And, you know, that will stick with us for the rest of our lives. And we would have never met her had we not happened to join the same shift. Um, you know, so I think often when when there's talk about um, giving back and community service and community impact and volunteering and, you know, whatever word you want to use, you know, there's there's a lot of different narratives that I think get assigned to that type of work. I think there's a lot of like savior things that get involved, um, mm, yeah. which I think is a pretty uh, dangerous slope. Um, and I think I think you have to be very aware of why you're why you're doing what you're doing and, and what the point of it is um, and kind of who you're serving and what you're getting out of it. And, you know, to be very just thoughtful about all those things and Georgine, one of her refrains was always that she always felt like she got more than she gave. And mm -hmm. yeah, uh, yeah, Georgine was just super, super special. And she had such a like a strong personality and a lot of I would say like confidence without uh, ego, which I think is very, very rare mm -hmm. <laughs> in yeah. this world. Um, and, you know, so when I think about women, who I've learned from um, and who who I try to kind of, um, you know, sort of channel their their energy and their spirit. You know, it's 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 Georgine. It's my grandmother. Um, I think it's it's women who who gave because they they weren't doing it to, you know, get credit for it. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, it was just, it was a part of their day. It was a part of their week. It was a part of their routine. Yeah. And when you were talking about the um, the kind of bakery that your family had, that also struck me where it's not the like extravagant thing that you get, you know, twice a year that really becomes a part of your life and your neighborhood and your lived experience. It's the place that you go, you know, three, four times a week where you mm. know everybody, where they know you, where you keep tabs on, you know, who needs help with the boxes. And yeah, that's just, that's such an important part of life that I think we don't see glamorized mm -hmm. a lot. But when we look back and then we, you know, recall an experience in a time, it's like, it's that daily routine that really comes back to yeah, us. Yeah, that like definition of a, uh, a neighborhood institution. Yeah, I mean, totally. I think, you know, at the end of the day, like our lives are made up of our day-to-day our -day life. You know, it's like, mm. of course, we remember mm. the big, you know, I'll never forget the day Grace and I got married. <laughs> like, I'll never forget, <laughs> you know, these big occasions when I, I don't know, graduated high school. Like, that was great. Um, you know, we have these moments that I think uh, let us know, like, this is an important moment. Like, pay attention. But it's like, you graduate from high school once, you know. I got married once. I mean, some people do more than once, but it's like you don't do that every day. Yeah, you know, it's 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 what you do every day that is like what adds up. And I I wonder for everyone who is really inspired by this conversation, and I think a lot of people will be. Um, how do you recommend that folks sort of use cooking and like providing for others? to advance what they want to see in the world. I'm, I'm so inspired personally by Feed the Resistance, which is a, a book and a project that you've worked on, um, and Queer Soup Nights and, and other things that are mm -hmm. sort of centered around food, but ultimately about community building and activism. So if you could just give us either a couple of tips or a little bit of a recap on the kind of work that you do, I think it'll go a, a long way with our audience. Sure, yeah. Well, I really appreciate that. And um, yeah, Feed the Resistance is... Um, 
a little book with a lot in it. <laughs> um, it's a book that I was able to put out in October of 2017. Um, it was definitely inspired by the election a year before that. Mm -hmm. um, and it includes recipes and essays from over 20 contributors, 20 of the kind of smartest, coolest, greatest people I know in and around food. Um, and that book I mean, honestly, one piece of advice is is to get the book that and I say that also because all the proceeds go to the ACLU. Mm -hmm. So just by buying the book in and of that act, um, you support the protection of civil, yeah. civil liberties. So yeah, so that's like a really simple answer. And I don't mean to be mean glib, but that book is just literally filled with ideas. There's a list of ideas for ways to get involved. Um, there's all different things. But I think food is gives us one of the easiest and quickest ways to build community. And so you can use it in so, so many ways. But I think mostly just thinking about the people um, involved in every single meal you eat. So whether it's the people who grew the ingredients that you bought or the store you bought them from or the people you're inviting to your table um, when you have a meal and what you're talking about with them. You know, food allows us to have this um this thing that happens every day where we eat and we have this sense of comfort and familiarity, you know, especially if we're, if we're lucky to feel those things and, and have access to food. Mm -hmm. um, and within that, we have the ability to create a comfortable setting to have really uncomfortable conversations. Um, that's what's going to move us forward is really talking through the stuff, figuring it out, building community, building coalitions. And there's no better place to do that than over a meal. Seeing a kid with your TV and saying, you must be in need. <laughs> How can I feed you and, and show you a little yeah. love? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's beautiful. Well, Julia, thank you so much for sharing um, so many uh, parts of your life and your mythology and folklore with us. I am walking away, I think, with such uh, just so galvanized and so ready to, to, to feed somebody the next time I have a chance. Mm. Awesome. Awesome. And that, that could be today, which is so yeah. cool. Absolutely. I appreciate you asking me to come on, and it's really um, a gift to get to, to talk about these folks. It was our absolute pleasure to have you. Well, uh, listeners, please check out Julia's show, Keep Calm and Cook On, anywhere that you get your podcasts. And she is at Tertian on Instagram and Twitter. Um, Julia, anything else to promote your newest book or Feed the Resistance once more? I mean, all of that sounds great. Yes. <laughs> My latest cookbook um, <laughs> is called Now and Again, which is really fun. It's all um, really simple recipes to make whole menus and then ideas for things to do with the leftovers from those meals. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot in that one, too. But yeah, everything you mentioned is great. Thank you. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Julia. Thanks again to our sponsors. Thirdlove.com slash spirits will get you 15% off your first bra purchase. Stitchfix.com slash spirits will get you 25% off when you keep all of the items in your personally curated style box. And Head Heart Gut is the brand new weekly show from Multitude. Go to multicrew.club to join the Multicrew today. Spirits was created by Amanda McLaughlin, Julia Shafini, and Eric Schneider, with music by Kevin McLeod and visual design by Allison Wakeman. Keep up with all things creepy and cool by following us at Spirits Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Tumblr. We also have all of our episode transcripts, guest appearances, and merch on our website, as well as a form to send us your urban legends at spiritspodcast.com. Join our member community on Patreon, patreon.com slash spiritspodcast for all kinds of behind-the-scenes stuff. Just $1 
$1 gets you access to audio extras with so much more available too. Recipe cards, director's commentaries, exclusive merch, and real physical gifts. We are a founding member of Multitude, a collective of independent audio professionals. If you like spirits, you will love the other shows that live on our website at multitude.productions. And above all else, if you liked what you heard today, please share us with your friends. That is the very best way to help us keep on growing. Thank you so much for listening. Till next time.